Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I try to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own U.S. politics and policy angles on these different issues when it is relevant. On this week's Current Account, I'm going to go pretty much all politics. We are a year out from the 2024 U.S. presidential elections. We're going to talk with A.B. Stoddard, who is a columnist at The Bulwark, and anybody that has ever been in Washington knows that she's a guru of Washington politics, has been a reporter and a columnist for over 30 years. But before we get to A.B., let me start with a little context from more of an amateur in politics, which is me. So the two most likely candidates for the presidency in the United States from the Republicans and the Democrats will be first, President Joe Biden of the Democrats, and second, former President Donald Trump for the Republicans. I'll just say, if it turns out it is President Biden versus former President Trump, and one of them wins, we will obviously hope that either of them does the best that they possibly can for their country. Now, Neither of them is guaranteed, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit. There are things in the United States called primaries that we have to work our way through. If it happens that it's President Biden versus former President Trump, it'll be the first time that, one, a former president took on an incumbent president. It would be the first time since the 19th century that's happened. And maybe just as interestingly, it'll be the first time that we have two men in back-to-back elections actually run against each other. It was the first time since the 1950s when Dwight Eisenhower and Adlai Stevenson fought it out twice in a row. Well, besides it being a year out before the elections, we have a couple of important points to touch upon as context again. Despite the U.S. economy being in what most people would think is pretty decent shape, particularly on a relative basis to other economies around the world, President Biden's popularity has declined over time. And it has stayed pretty low. It has not bounced back even as the economy has been more resilient than most people would have suggested. And most recently, a lot of polls have come forward, not just national polls, but polls at the state level in the very tough states, and I know AB will get into that a little bit, that show that Donald Trump actually is not the underdog going into the election. He's the favorite to actually oust President Biden after one term. On the other hand, We had some polling data that would have suggested that the Republicans were going to do pretty well a couple weeks ago in some state-level elections here in the United States. And instead, the Democrats pretty much beat the Republicans on almost every count. If you look at the 2022 midterm elections, an election in which usually the Democratic incumbent would have done really badly, the Republicans actually did pretty badly. While it is true that they flipped the House of Representatives, they barely did it. And in fact, you can see the fact that they barely did it by how much infighting continues to go on with the Republicans at the House level. But all that being said, we haven't actually had anybody vote on anything so far for the 2024 elections. The primaries, which typically start in Iowa and in New Hampshire, will begin in January and February of 2024. So it is possible that another Republican could rise up and clutch the nomination away from Donald Trump, and the field has begun to narrow on the Republican side. At the same time, Donald Trump does face significant legal jeopardy going into 2024, and you never know, he's been indicted on lots of charges. Could he actually go into a court of law and be proven guilty, and would that make a difference in the elections? 
Well, to help us unpack all of this, as I mentioned before, I have with me A.B. Stoddard. So first of all, let me say thank you, A.B. And secondly, just to start us off, maybe we start on the Democratic side of the aisle, the current incumbent president, Joe Biden, the man who actually beat Donald Trump in 2020. Why can't he seem to get traction and not start taking off on his own? And maybe you could just kind of explain where he is in his campaign to be the president for a second term. Well, Clay, uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Joe Biden, as you mentioned, is the underdog. If you look at polling, he's never really recovered from a dip that he suffered in August of 2021. He had actually polled quite impressively in the winter of 2021 when he came in right after Donald Trump, after the January 6th insurrection, to a country trying to crawl out of COVID, uh, people began to get both their vaccines and really truly thought by May or June of 21 that we were in a new normal. And there was a buoyant feeling in the country, and that was borne out in the support for him, which rose in some polls to 53%, which in our electorate is pretty impressive. We are very polarized down the middle, and getting to 53% approval is kind of going to pretty much soon be unheard of. So the Afghanistan withdrawal in August produces a big hit to his approval at home. And then his party began to fight in the fall of 2021 over the ill-fated Build Back Better, a huge social safety net spending program that really divided the Democratic Party. And Biden's polling has kind of never recovered. Since then, he's actually had a list of very impressive, consequential legislative accomplishments, which brought in an era of bipartisanship that we have not seen in a very long time and aren't likely to again. This was in the area of veterans' health care, infrastructure, semiconductor manufacturing, in addition to the codification of same-sex marriage, the first gun reform in 30 years and an Electoral Count Act update. In addition, there was a partisan bill that the Democrats passed, the erroneously named Inflation Reduction Act, but it did provide a $35 cap on insulin and create a tremendous new incentive in the area of climate, new green energy manufacturing that is going to produce a lot of good paying jobs, ironically, in red areas of the country for workers who uh, don't have a college degree, didn't vote for Joe Biden, and aren't likely to again. But it was an attempt by Joe Biden, along with the money in the infrastructure program, as well as the CHIPS Act, the Semiconductor Manufacturing Law, to basically infuse a bunch of investment in areas hardest hit by globalization to sort of re-industrialize those parts of the country and those Americans who are left behind in an increasingly digitized and globalized economy. This is what Joe Biden believes in. What he believes is that you build the economy from the bottom up and out. And as you can see in the numbers, and as you mentioned, Clay, there are plenty of economic indicators that show that the country is experiencing very strong growth record new small businesses, consumer confidence trying to come back, inflation climbing down, uh, more job growth under President Biden in less than three years than the last three Republican administrations combined. 
But find me an American voter who knows that. What they focus on is prices and perception. So because of record inflation, the first in their lifetimes that they've known, price increases that they obviously believe will never go away, that they are factoring into their future. This has created tremendous anxiety. And as a result, you can see in polling that Americans believe that we've lost jobs under Joe Biden and the disconnect, the gap between what we're experiencing in terms of the economic data versus how Americans feel about it has never been bigger since polling began. So this is Joe Biden's primary problem. The other problem is that Joe Biden is too old to run for re-election. He is our oldest ever president. He's turning 82 in a few weeks and promising to lead the free world until January of 2029, and people are not buying it, including in his party. So when people look at the polling between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, what they will see is that his age is a disqualifying factor, and he has been written off by 70% or more in some surveys of the electorate. And again, I'll mention including in his party. And so this has set up a real crisis for the Democratic Party. They have inflation making Americans anxious and feeling also, of course, obviously because of two wars that have also happened since he was inaugurated in Europe and now the Middle East, that this is a permanent state of chaos that they expected to resolve after COVID resolved and Trump left office. And they feel that we have more chaos now and more uncertainty because of inflation that they feel they cannot keep up with. So this is really a death sentence politically for Joe Biden. And that is what I'm seeing in the polls. His own coalition is apathetic, Clay. Latino voters, African-American voters, independent voters, young voters, Asian voters, black men, just disastrous, the precipitous drop in support. Joe Biden could not win again with those numbers if the election were held today. So the Democrats keep saying they have a lot of work to do. Work in our electoral system means energizing volunteers, directing resources towards targeted parts of the coalition, investing in swing states. All of that stuff can help. But Joe Biden will be a year older next year. And that's why a lot of people are really panicked in the Democratic Party that he can't pull this off. Okay. All right. So You said a potential death sentence for Joe Biden, which would suggest that would create a, I guess, a second life sentence for Donald Trump. Now, as I said in the opening, there are other strong candidates on the Republican side. We haven't actually gotten to the primaries. And of course, Donald Trump does face legal jeopardy. I guess my question first is... Could Donald Trump actually lose the Republican primary? So put Joe Biden aside, and could somebody else, obviously the major candidates left, Nikki Haley, the former UN ambassador and governor from South Carolina, and Ron DeSantis, the current governor of the state of Florida. I know there's other candidates, but I think those are probably the two leading contenders that would jump up if Donald Trump fell. Well, you tell me what you think. So barring death or a health crisis, Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. A lot of Americans and a lot of people from around the world watching these elections don't yet understand that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are going to be the nominees. And they haven't started paying attention to the election. They believe that Joe Biden certainly is not going to run again and something's going to happen over there. And they think that Donald Trump is going to jail. 
So when you focus on it more closely, uh, Donald Trump's first trial date is Monday, March 4th, and the following day is Super Tuesday, March 5th. And on that day, he will cement his status as the presumptive nominee officially. You're right. You said in your intro, no one has weighed in and no one has started voting. So it looks like we're two months away from Iowa, the very first vote on January 15th, when that first primary state will weigh in. And in the past has really, you know, obviously been extraordinarily influential in determining the outcome of the nominating fight. But in this situation, this extraordinary, unprecedented situation, Donald Trump's lead, there's no historical comparison for anyone overcoming a lead like this. He has a control of the base, a command of the base that is so overpowering that even if Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis ends up the last person standing in second place, um, they don't look like they have a chance in taking him down. They are running to be there in case something happens to him. But his legal troubles are not likely to derail him for the nomination. Is it possible that they derail him in the general election and Joe Biden beats him because of it? It absolutely is possible. We have no idea what we're going to learn next year. We have no idea how the middle of the electorate that is not politically addicted that doesn't follow any of this stuff is going to respond when they learn more about these 91 criminal charges. That's an entirely separate question. But can Donald Trump officially become the nominee between January 15 and March 5 without his legal problems injuring his chances? That's what we're all assuming because none of the candidates are taking him on. Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are not telling the voters, I have read the indictment that outlines how the former president stole our national secrets and potentially disseminated them to dangerous and reckless people by throwing them around his private club in Florida. You're not going to hear them say anything like that because they are trying to win over some of Trump's voters. And so with no one running against him, it's hard to knock him out of the race. Okay. All right. So I'm going to ask you a question about timelines, but you actually kind of really got into that. So the way basically, so everyone's aware, the way a nominee from each party is selected is they run in primaries, state by state by state by state. And if they can get enough votes through that, they can become basically the presumptive candidate of their party. And that happens at the conventions, the Republican convention, the Democratic convention. What you mentioned was an interesting point was, all right, so there will be the Iowa caucus, then the New Hampshire primary, and then there's this thing called Super Tuesday. And it's one day after, I guess, his court case begins, one of his four ongoing criminal court cases, he actually has some civil court cases that are actually ongoing right now. Could he wrap the whole thing up by Super Tuesday, which is still actually early in the primary season, but it is when a number of states make a vote. Is that how it works? Right. So the reason he can wrap it up on Super Tuesday is because the way that Republicans divvy up their delegates, it's like a winner-take-all system. So if you get a plurality of them, you win that state's delegates. California, Donald Trump started working on this in 2020 when there was no one challenging him to work on all the rules to try to ensure that if any state was thinking of changing them, he would put the boot on the neck to make sure that it favored someone in his position in the lead. And it has really helped him out because here we are three years later, or how many years later, and he is in the position to get California's delegate hall on Super Tuesday, along with a bunch of other states, obviously California being the most consequential because of the math. So the system 
favors Donald Trump as the front runner, and it really hinders some kind of come from behind sprint of momentum by someone like DeSantis or Haley as a number two. It's not like it is on the Democratic side where you can slug it out and make it last into May. In Donald Trump's commanding position in the polls, combined with the way that the delegates are apportioned in the Republican contests in the states, he is basically going to sweep. The only outlier, and people should know this, is New Hampshire, the second contest. New Hampshire is an open primary. There's a long story that no one needs to be bored with by why Joe Biden is not technically going to be on the ballot there. Democrats can play in that primary and vote for someone like Chris Christie to, you know, to just to oppose Trump. Well, let me just clarify. That's Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey. Independents will likely vote for Chris Christie, Ron DeSantis, or Nikki Haley, and not Trump. So if Trump has a bad night in New Hampshire, it's great for the couple people who do well, but it's not determinative. It doesn't mean that Donald Trump doesn't bounce back in South Carolina and sweep up on Super Tuesday. So I just wanted to point that out because it could be confusing and people might think, oh, he was totally thrown off. He had a great night in Iowa. And a few weeks later, he didn't make the top two in New Hampshire. A, I think he will, but B, it won't matter if he doesn't. So that's just an important thing to point out about the rhythm of the first bunch of contests. Let's move to the general election, because I think you're pretty clear that you see it as 81-year-old Joe Biden fighting it out versus the 78-year-old Donald Trump. So maybe you can talk about what you see as the key variables for how each of them could win or defeat the other. So I, I know, obviously, on Joe Biden's side, you mentioned, I actually like the way you put it, problems on prices and on perception. And the big perception is that he is too old to continue taking on this huge task of being president of the United States. And of course, on prices, that's an issue of inflation. I'm not sure he can turn those two things around, particularly his age. But what can he do to kind of beat Donald Trump? And I guess vice versa, is there something that Donald Trump can do to, I guess, consolidate his current lead and make it over the top because, you know, he didn't do it in 2020. So can he figure out a way? Well, his messages are resonating in the middle. So if you look at voters from the Biden coalition who are currently telling pollsters that they favor Trump, they're saying we weren't getting involved in new wars and things cost less under Trump. We know he's crazy, but Joe Biden doesn't have the capacity anymore to be president and things were cheaper than Trump's not going to get us into wars. Now, we don't have any troops in Gaza, and we don't have any troops in Ukraine, but we're obviously providing security assistance, and we're committed to the defense of both of those sovereign nations against, you know, invasion and massacre and everything else. So Biden and Senator Mitch McConnell over on the Republican side are part of like a dying breed of this kind of bipartisan consensus on our role, that our leadership in the world is, is indispensable and necessary. And there is an increasing strain of isolationism within the Republican Party. And then there's, of course, a strain of not only anti-Semitism, but pro-Hamas sentiment in the radical left of the Democratic Party, which also threatens Joe Biden. So for Trump, if he focuses on the need to stay out of wars, to not involve ourselves in wars, to not spend any money on wars, and that everything costs too much, 
that is a very robust message for those voters that are either fleeing the Democratic coalition to Trump or are so frustrated Biden they're going to sit it out. And that's a big danger, right? Not just that you lose the voters, but that they stay home. So the other one is immigration, right? This is immigration and crime have been completely ignored by the Democrats. Those two issues are very potent with the middle of the electorate and with many Democrats. And we saw in 2020 when there was um, a big argument from the deep left about defunding the police after the George Floyd murder that Republicans used that to their advantage and to their benefit, and that non-college Black and Hispanic voters who want more police in their neighborhoods ended up voting for more Republicans in that election in 2020. The Democrats figured that out, and they realized it, and Joe Biden tried repeatedly to say that we want to fund the police, and we are pro-police, and tried to align himself with support for law enforcement, etc. Those are issues, crime and immigration, in in addition to inflation and new conflicts, costly conflicts. Those were all very resonant issues for the middle of the electorate and those apathetic Democrats, like I mentioned, that would be non-college, Black and Latino, and young, and then, of course, independents seem to have swung back to Trump. So those are a lot of issues to talk about for Trump and Republicans. All right. So how can Joe Biden get reelected? I mean, the pro-growth, aren't I doing really well? And I had a really solid legislative agenda that, you know, nobody since Franklin Delano Roosevelt has passed. That doesn't seem to be working. So what is the approach that he would need to take, you think, in order to beat Donald Trump? Well, it's two things. And then I would add a third, which is kind of my own. Number one, the Anti-MAGA coalition has turned out for the Democrats in 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23, ever since we've had Donald Trump. And the Democrats are counting on it turning out again. And when it turns out, it is energized by Trump's authoritarian conduct and his anti-democratic governance and his mission to centralize power into the executive branch and basically ignore the Constitution, the courts, and the Congress. In 2022, after the big lie about the election, that it was stolen from him, the two-month coup plot, and the January 6th insurrection, he then endorsed people who lied about the election. And what was supposed to be a red wave election, as you said in your introduction, went terribly for the Republicans. They lost every Senate swing state except for Wisconsin, and the Democrats picked up Pennsylvania and picked up a seat in the Senate. Yes, the House flipped, but it flipped from like a four-seat majority to a four-seat majority. They were hoping for 40 seats. So it was because there was this energized anti-MAGA coalition furious about abortion and coming out to oppose what they view as extremist candidates. Another point that's really important, more Republicans voted in the midterm elections than Democrats. Many of them just voted for Democrats. So abortion is extremely energizing. It energizes Trump voters. It energizes Republican, suburban, independent swing women. It energizes independents across the board. And of course, energizes the Democratic coalition. So that is a winning issue. It is a losing issue for Republicans. They have not landed on a position that unites them, that is acceptable with the swing bellwether voter. So that is a problem for them. Will Donald Trump likely come out next year as a nominee and say, I'm opposed to a federal ban 
I gave the pro-lifers what they wanted. I nominated and were confirmed three Supreme Court justices who overturned Roe v. Wade, and now they got what they asked for. I will not do anything further. I am a moderate on abortion. It's going to go to the states and they can just kiss it. That's what he's going to say. And the pro-life leadership will support him anyway. That makes it a little more challenging for Democrats. But the fact that he is responsible for the overturning of Roe v. Wade, the fact that there is chaos in the states about this, makes people across the electorate furious. A lot of pro-life voters since last summer have discovered that they were pro-Roe. And that has changed things. That is the number one issue for Democrats and Joe Biden. In addition, of course, you know, pointing out that Donald Trump truly believes he's above the law and expects all of his voters to support an erosion of the rule of law to protect him, that he is above being held to account for his crimes. And that once we ignore the rule of law for Donald Trump, we will not get it back. Those arguments are very powerful. That on democracy, and then, of course, abortion. My third that I would add is that I think that while no new commercials for battery plants will get young voters who are apathetic and thinks everything costs too much and thinks we have boots on the ground in Ukraine, even though we don't, to come out for Joe Biden, I do think if they can target the places where they have projects coming online, I don't know where where those are, but if they can send Joe Biden next year to places that might not vote for him, places like Indiana or Georgia or Kentucky, where there are projects coming online and providing new jobs, it will show that he has produced and it will show other voters that he had a consequential record that he delivered on. And that while we're in, you know, global inflation, whatever, this is a guy that was trying to rebuild the economy from the bottom up. I don't think having him go and give a lot of speeches is great, but Showing up at these places and getting the local press and getting the members of Congress to talk about it, if the project actually is coming online, if the bridge is actually being built or the new, you know, whatever battery plant is opening, I think that will be very effective. You don't tell people that there's no inflation. You don't tell people the economy is great. You tell them we've worked really hard to produce new manufacturing that will produce high paying, great jobs and revitalize these areas and these industries. I think that can be effective. But you, you cannot tell them that there's no crime, there's no immigration, and there's no inflation, which they were trying to do in, in 2022 to an extent. So that's the ground they have to fight on, I believe. That's an interesting point, and, and you're right. I think I knew most of the points you were going to say, but that last point's a really interesting one, which is show a contrast, kind of go back to actually all the way back to what you said earlier about, in some respects, President Biden's support started slipping with our Afghanistan withdrawal, and let's face it, most time foreign policy is not the biggest issue in U.S. politics, but it showed a kind of a level of incompetence that was probably surprised people about the Biden administration. And now what your point is, is right. And so how can you reverse that by showing here we are, this was a form of competence. And of course, as you mentioned, I think the word you used was consequential. So I think that was really interesting. Yeah. When he was riding high in polling in winter and spring of 21, it was because people perceived the rollout of the vaccine program as competent. And he was considered this man of government for 50 years. And everyone just thought, wow, like they know how to do this governing thing. That's why the Afghanistan withdrawal was so ugly and so upsetting even though it was very much put into place by the Trump administration and Joe Biden was emphatic that they do it, it was, it was so mishandled. 
And then, as I said, after that, there was this Democratic Party infighting over proposals to spend way too much money, and the perception that they were incompetent and divided continued. And his polling has never recovered. Okay. Well, that's actually really good. You have pointed out, I think, some good areas where Joe Biden could really run hard and some good areas where Donald Trump could really run hard. So it's an unfair question for you, but I'll ask it anyway. Where do you see the potential surprises coming from? And obviously, a surprise is just that, a surprise. But there are things that at least you could kind of see on the horizon that could really put a wrench into any of the kind of assumptions that you've been trying to make. I don't know that there's been a year in my career of covering politics that has been more ripe for surprises. I still have people, colleagues and friends and political watchers who say there's no way Biden and Trump will be the nominees. Something's going to happen. You know, the meteor will come. And that is a fascinating idea, prospect. I mean, it, it is true that Joe Biden could sometime in the next year have a health event and pull out of the race. There is the possibility that Hunter Biden, his son, gets in serious legal trouble, and that is an issue for their family, and he pulls out of the race. There is the idea that something is revealed about Donald Trump before he is actually sitting in a courtroom from these investigations and these cases that is so damaging that enough people in his party say, this guy's, this guy's going to lose us. He's going to elect Joe Biden again. We better not vote for him. Like He's going to sink like a stone. You know, Panic the voters. That could happen. We have two conflicts now in the Middle East and in Ukraine, which could really get substantially worse and don't look like they will be resolved or will get better for Joe Biden by election day. So that is going to really wear on the electorate and getting into a wider war with Iran or other proxies is incredibly dangerous. We don't think that China will move on Taiwan before this election, not until after 2025. But look, I mean, look at the map and the trouble spots. There's a whole range of things that could make things very much worse for Joe Biden and worse for Trump. I mean, he is on the path to get the nomination. And so far, people are afraid, with the exception of Chris Christie, to point out just how unfit he is for this office and the madness of putting a convicted felon on the ballot next November. But he never seems to stop topping himself. So you know, we can't be entirely sure that he doesn't shoot himself in the face on the path between now and and mid-March. So I am open to the fact that there is more around the corner. (laughs) I most certainly am. All right. Well, thank you very much, AB. And you've been really, really generous with your time. And I do appreciate it. Thanks, Clay. Now it's time for my three, two, one. That's my three main takeaways from my conversation with AB Stoddard. Two things I'm looking forward to in my one sports fact. First, President Biden's job approval in the United States began to slip in August of 2021 because fairly or unfairly, he was seen as having an incompetent way of retreating from Afghanistan. But it has stayed that as low because of what AB pointed out, because of prices, inflation, perception, partially maybe inflation, but partially his age. Next, I thought it was interesting that AB said that President Trump could wrap everything up by March 5th 
in the United States in terms of becoming the Republican nominee. And in fact, she believes he will after the Iowa caucus, New Hampshire primary, and what is known as Super Tuesday. And third, AB's case for how former President Trump can become president again is by focusing on President Biden's failure to address inflation, the growing geopolitical risks that seem to be happening all around the world, the problems of immigration in the United States, and the problem of crime in the United States. Whereas President Biden's main approach to become president again is going to focus on a few issues. On the positive side, the fact that he has had consequential legislation, I thought A.B. made a really interesting point about can he provide case examples to demonstrate his competence. Next is the very important issue of abortion rights here in the United States and how the President Trump himself has undermined those, those rights and how President Trump has at least potentially undermined the importance of democracy in the United States. And then related to that is just essentially the anti-Trump, A.B. called it anti-MAGA, vote that could occur in the U.S. Basically, energize the base because you really don't like the other person. The two things I'm looking forward to are first are the Republican primaries that will be taking place in January, February, and March in Iowa, New Hampshire, and then Super Tuesday, which is a number of states. And second, and of course... I'm looking forward to the general election that will take place on November 5th, 2024 in the United States. And now for my one sports fact. And that's to talk about a field hockey coach in the state of North Carolina, actually for the University of North Carolina. And her name is Erin Matson. She's 23 years old. That's right, I said that. 23 years old and she is the head coach of her team. Many consider her probably the greatest player to ever play women's field hockey in college in the United States. She was a four-time national champion. She was three times player of the year. And when she left, she was the all-time leader in her conference for goals and points. And when she left, coach was retiring at the same time. She said, I think I could be a really good head coach. And the University of North Carolina agreed. So at 23, she's the youngest coach in any NCAA sport in in the United States. And she has led her team already to the Final Four this year in field hockey, and she won her conference. I did try to figure out, if she actually won the NCAA, would she be the youngest coach to ever win? I think the answer is absolutely yes. There seems to be a number of coaches who have won who were in their early 30s. She's 23. So, wish her good luck, and she's obviously a fantastic player, and it now sounds like she's becoming a fantastic coach. So that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. Before I say the remainder of my sentences, I just want to say thanks again to A.B. Stoddard for taking time to do this podcast. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listeners and we can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. And all of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.